You know, oftentimes big things come in little packages. Uh, it doesn't have to be large to be effective. It doesn't have to be large to be powerful. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. I brought uh, a picture this morning. Uh, it's of the Guinness World Record smallest handgun known to man. Uh, this is an actual six-shooter. It's the Swiss minigun, um, and it is just over two inches long, uh, r- roughly right about that. Um, it shoots a nine-caliber bullet, I believe. Uh, it weighs 0.7 ounces, and it actually shoots. I mean, it fires. You can go look up. Don't take my word for it. You can go Google, look up video, and you can see folks shooting this thing. Don't know how much damage it would do, but I'm sure it could do some. Uh, but you, you can buy this thing for just under $7,000. Um, it comes with uh, six bullets, and you can, if you want more, you can buy them for $10 a piece. So it's a little expensive to operate, uh, but it just kind of proves the point that uh, sometimes um, big things come in small packages. It doesn't have to be big uh, to do damage, to be powerful, or expensive, very expensive in this case. Uh, little things can be extremely expensive. This is in part, at least in a spiritual sense, the point that Jesus is making with the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek. Uh, he's making the point that you don't have to, what the world may consider to be big, to be valuable, uh, to be important, isn't always the way God looks at things. And kingdom value, a lot of times, roles are reversed. It's the opposite of what we would think. And so we look at that this morning as we continue our series on the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5 through 7, uh, we see the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is zigzagging the countryside. He's teaching his disciples. He's teaching anyone who the crowds are growing, anyone who would gather around. And right in the middle of it, Jesus teaches, at the very beginning of it, Jesus teaches the Beatitudes. And uh, we learn that the Beatitudes describe for us the inner qualities of a true disciple. Jesus is showing us with the Beatitudes what it means, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. If I'm going to live it out every day, that's what it looks like. And they answer, if you'll recall, two very important questions for us. And questions that I'm sure we've all asked at some point or other in our lives. Uh, one, what does Jesus want from me? What does he expect from me if I'm going to be his follower? And two, what does he want for me? What, what's his, his plan for my life? And while everybody has a specific purpose, I believe God gives us, there are some general things that he wants for all followers of Christ, all believers. And the Beatitudes describe, they answer these questions. Again, they show us what it looks like to be be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. According to Jesus, a Christian is somebody who is poor in spirit. They recognize their condition, spiritual condition before God, and as a result, they mourn over their sin. And they are blessed because of it. They, he is a person, he or she, a Christian is a person who's meek, which we'll talk about today. What does it mean to be meek and why are they blessed? Uh, somebody who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Somebody who is pure in heart, who's merciful, who's a peacemaker, who is persecuted for the sake of righteousness. These are the qualities of a disciple. These are the characteristics of a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And it is a lot different 
from our American culture that focuses so much on outward things, on, on outward characteristics, money, possessions, fame, fortune, all of those things, which, you know, uh, in and of themselves may not be bad. Hey, even in, in the, the church world, church attendance, and, and how much I give to the church, and things of that nature, all important things, and all things that followers of Christ do, should do, but those things are done because of what we are on the inside. You know, being a disciple of Christ is not about what I do as much as it is about who I am and, 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 and whose I am. Uh, you know, if I'm a follower of Christ, there's going to be a life change that results in outward behavior. I'm not a Christian because of what I am on the outside. I am because of what I am on the inside. And, and in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, one of those characteristics on the inside that's shown through my action is that I am meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So if we're going to talk about being meek, then I think it's important to understand what it means. So what does it mean to be meek? Well, you know, it's not a positive word necessarily in our culture. I say the word meek, and it may not uh, bring positive thoughts to your mind. And if you look at a thesaurus, a quick look through a thesaurus, and you'll see that that's uh, pretty much uh, the, the commonly held belief that it's not necessarily a positive word. It can be, but not every uh, synonym for meek uh, is uh, humble. Some of those from uh, that I found, humble, docile, mild, calm, gentle, peaceful. Uh, those things are, are, are okay, are good. Tame, submissive. But, but here's one area where it kind of takes a little bit of a negative turn, soft. In other words, spineless. Another word for meek is spineless, passive, and broken, somebody who's broken. Um, some, some of those words positive, some of them not so much. But another source lists these phrases to illustrate meekness. To eat dirt, to lick dust, to cringe like a dog, or to take it on the chin. Those are certainly not positive uh, phrases, right? So, uh, you know, the word meek kind of carries with it a negative meaning, in our minds at least. And most of us, the reason is, I think most of us associate meekness with weakness. If you're meek, that equals you're weak, and that, that is not the intent. This word that Jesus used to describe his followers is important. And it's important that we understand exactly what it means. In ancient Greece, meekness was a virtue that was between two extremes. Somebody who was meek, they were neither timid nor given to fits of rage. Um, they, were, they were in the middle. Uh, Aristotle defined it as the absence of excessive anger. Uh, he also said that, that, that it meant getting angry at the right time uh, for the right reasons in the right way. You think of Jesus overturning the tables at the temple, an example of that. And so it was somewhere in the middle between those two extremes. The Greeks also used the word to describe uh, mild words, a soothing medicine, a horse that had been tamed, a refreshing wind, all things that can be incredibly powerful, right? 
All of those things. Words can be powerful. Wind can be powerful. If you've ever been in a tornado or in a hurricane, you know this. Water can generate great power, can be powerful itself. But when harnessed, horses can be powerful. But when tamed, all of those things, when they're harnessed, uh, they can be very effective. There's great power, but that power is under control. In the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 37, the equivalent Hebrew word is used to describe a man who is submissive to the will of God. So the meek man is who is somebody who has submitted himself, all of himself, to the Lord. So three words, three simple words to describe meekness. It's power that's under control. It's not weakness. It's power that's under control. Uh, the meek man has enormous power, but he uses it effectively. He uses it as he should because it's under the right control, which we'll look at today. Blessed are the meek. Let's go a little further, and hopefully we will see why the meek are blessed. Number one, we're going to explore the advantages of, of meekness, the advantages of meekness. Uh, it's a, a virtue that lies somewhere between two extremes. So what does meekness accomplish in my life? What does it look like in my life? Well, one thing, meekness accomplishes humility. Humility, meekness produces humility. And if I'm humble... Here's one of the greatest things meekness accomplishes for us. If I'm humble, I will get out of the way so that other people will see Jesus. Uh, What I do will point to him. It won't point to me. It won't draw attention to myself. It will point to Jesus Christ. Thomas Merton said, The humble man receives praise the way a clean window takes the light of the sun. The truer and more intense the light is, the less you see the glass. That's the meek man. Whatever he does... It simply is a window through which you can look and see Jesus Christ. I'm pointing to Jesus. Uh, The meek are able to be kind because it's not about me. They're able to give. They're able to build others up because it's not about me. They're able to think of others, more easily think of others before themselves because, again, it's not about me. It's about pointing people to Jesus. And we all, if we're honest... We crave kindness, don't we? We want people to be kind to us. And that in and of itself should drive us to be kind to others. But meekness is is a very important characteristic in being kind to other people. George Eliot reminds us when death, the great reconciler, has come, it is never our tenderness that we repent of, but our severity. It's not the people we've been nice to, it's the people that we've been mean to that we need to reconcile with, that we want to ask forgiveness from. So there's the characteristic of humility. There's also the, the, the characteristic of being teachable. Meekness produces a teachableness, teachability. Uh, the meek are able to, able to receive direction. Now, you know, it's not that Jesus is promoting that we just kind of bow to every authority or go with every whim directed by whoever or whatever. It's not, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not that we're weak, that we're pushovers. Uh, that's not what he's saying at all. Uh, but somebody who's meek, what Jesus is trying to communicate to his followers is first and foremost that we allow ourselves to be directed by God, but then also by godly people. Right? That we are teachable, that we're willing to grow, but most importantly, that we are submissive to the Lord and that we are teachable, we are disciples, which a disciple is a student, that we truly are students of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
a directable meekness, a teachable spirit. That is not a handicap or a weakness. That is a wonderful thing, and it's something that, that is a key characteristic of being a disciple of Christ. It's, it's the opening for God to use us. It is, it is allowing God to have total control, submitting to him completely, which puts us in a position to be used by God in incredible ways. Romans 8, 26, remember what Paul says, in the same way, the Spirit also joins to help in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. We submit to the Lord. We recognize that we are not good enough on our own. We recognize that we need to be directed, that we need his instruction. We need his power, uh, even to know what to pray for. We've got to, to be taught by the Holy Spirit. It is recognizing that, that great need to be taught by God. Uh, we don't need to be aggressive. You know, you, a lot of folks struggle to grow in their relationship with God, and I think that, that part of the reason is because they are struggling. You know, we don't have to be aggressive to have a relationship with God. We just need to make ourselves available. We need to submit. We need to get out of our own way so that God can work in and through us. A lot of times we get in our own way because we're trying to do it ourselves, whatever it is. We're trying to run our own lives. And, and the first step to becoming what God wants you to be, to becoming who God wants. Remember, what does God want from me? What does he want for me? Well, the first step is humility, is allowing God to work in my life in the way that he chooses, not my own agenda. We have to trust God. The Holy Spirit is our counselor. We have to have teach a teachable spirit. And, and again, it begins with trust. Um, not so much anymore, but the, the, the kids went through a little stage where they, where they were doing trust falls. Are y'all still doing that? I don't know. Annie, Annie will do a trust fall in a heartbeat, y'all. She, she'll walk up, and this got her in trouble one time. She'll walk up to Timmy or Gracie and go trust fall, and then she's going, whether you're ready or not. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one time, Timmy, you weren't ready. And, uh, and I think that was the way it, way it went, went down. She, she did, yeah, Timmy doesn't remember. He doesn't. But I remember her, at least Annie told me one time that she walked up to Timmy and said, trust fall, and he wasn't ready, so she fell. But here's the amazing thing, and this is, I don't think I would do this. Uh, she was telling me this as she was doing it again later on. <laughs> so he'd already let her down once. I apologize, Tim, if it wasn't you, but I'm pretty sure it was you, big brother. But he'd already let her down once, and she, that's just how trusting she is. She figures, hey, big brother, big sister, they're going to catch me, right? And that says something about their relationship, I think. But I've got to be honest with you, Tim. If you drop me, I'm not coming back for seconds. I'm not doing it again, all right? Um, but, but that, so sometimes maybe our trust is misplaced, you know, depending on the circumstances. And there are some things uh, that we shouldn't trust in. Not that y'all shouldn't trust in each other. You should. But there are times where we put our trust in people or things that we shouldn't. Um, but putting our trust in, in God, that's something that you'll never regret. That is not a misplaced trust. Um, God is always faithful. And, and the first step to becoming what God wants me to be is surrendering my life to Christ. I mean, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit because they recognize their need. They recognize their poverty, and then they mourn over their sin. And so they surrender. The next step is surrender. It's meekness. It is recognizing that I need God and humbling myself before him because it's through that, it's through submission that we open ourselves up to 
the power of God in our lives, to whatever it is that he has for us, to be taught, to be directed by God. We must be teachable. We must be meek, trusting in the Lord. Living a Christian life is not just something I do. It's something that I am. It's who I am. It is a child of God surrendered to God. Next, let's look at the paradox of meekness. We see what meekness is and the advantages of meekness. Now let's look at the paradox. Remember, there's, there, there is um, two extremes, but there's also uh, a sense where there's an opposites type of thing going on here, right? Um, I, I brought with me this little tool. You've probably seen this. This is a, a seatbelt tool. You may even have one of these in your car, right? Um, it's very handy. Somebody gave this to me uh, a couple years ago. And on one end, there is a very sharp blade. If you get trapped in your car, which I hope that doesn't happen, you have a wreck, you're trapped in your car, and you can't get out, you can't get out of the seatbelt, you can use this sharp end to cut the seatbelt, and it cuts very effectively. It's pretty small, it's not big, but keeping your glove box wherever, uh, somewhere where you can get to it if you're trapped, uh, in your console, whatever the case may be. And then on the other end, there is a little pointed, it looks like a hammer, right? A little pointed, and this thing will shatter a car glass so that you can get out. This, I mean, it's very, very lightweight. It's, it's a little bigger than the Swiss minigun, but still pretty small. Um, very lightweight, um, not much to it, but man, it can do some damage if you want it to. I mean, it'll, I wouldn't recommend trying it on your car, uh, but it'll, it'll break the glass easily. Um, you've probably even seen advertisements where people have, have, have shown these, a commercial or something, where they show how that works. And, and again, it just it makes the point that something doesn't have to be big to do big things, to cause a lot of damage or to even rescue, to save your life, potentially. Something doesn't have to be large to have great impact to be incredibly powerful. And it's that, that opposite, which in Jesus, in kingdom terms, it's not opposite, but in our minds, uh, the bigger the better. Uh, bigger the, the vehicle, the more powerful it is. Uh, the, the bigger the gun, the more powerful it is. Or, or whatever the case may be, uh, bigger is equal to better in our way of thinking. But in Jesus' terms of measuring, and his method of measurement, Bigger is not always better. Bigger isn't always better, and small can indeed be beautiful. Um, because if God's power is the most important element, then the qualifications um, for making an impact or the, the requirements for making an impact don't, aren't dependent upon me. I, I'm just a vessel to be used. And if God's qualifications for, for being uh, are, are based on his power, then the most important element in me being a vessel is making myself available because the qualifications are pretty universal. I mean, anybody can be used by God to do incredible things. Think about the, the many examples, and we'll just talk about a few, but the many examples in Scripture where we see God do incredible, extraordinary things through ordinary people and ordinary things, inanimate objects. I mean, you think about the night that Jesus came. You know, if anything could be used to describe that, it would be ordinary. I mean, there wasn't anything special in the night in and of itself. It was just another night. 
Um, I mean, you had the, the extraordinary star in the sky, but think about the people that were involved in that event. Specifically, I mean, everybody, except for Jesus himself, but the shepherds. Think about the shepherds. I mean, why do you think God chose to use shepherds to be a part of that, that story? I mean, you talk about ordinary. I mean, they, these were not guys that you would want to go to to get their political opinions or views. These were not guys that you would go to to, to, to learn about the Torah, the law. I mean, these were just ordinary guys probably wearing everything they owned on them, all the clothes they owned. And they probably, you know, they were busy tending to sheep, and they probably smelled like sheep, too. There wasn't anything extraordinary about these guys, but yet God used them in this scenario. And I think it's to point out something very important. I mean, we see this unfold. The angel appears in front of the shepherds, and suddenly an ordinary night, ordinary guys, that, guys, that, that night became extraordinary. And, and that one of the reasons, I believe, is to teach this principle that God's most powerful tools are sometimes the simplest. There's just, I mean, it's just ordinary people, ordinary night, ordinary circumstances, and God enters the picture and makes it extraordinary. Think about Moses in Egypt. And then he goes, uh, and he, he becomes a shepherd. And we, we see in Exodus 4, he's been a shepherd more than he was a prince in Egypt. I mean, an ordinary guy. Um, he's probably wondered where God was on more than one occasion. In the many years, he's tending sheep. And then um, God speaks to him one day through a burning bush that doesn't burn up. On fire, but doesn't burn. Uh, suddenly, his ordinary life, every day, tending sheep becomes, and sheep that didn't even, you know, his father-in-law's, it becomes an extraordinary day. But then think about what God used to, gave Moses to use, the rod itself. Nothing fancy about the rod itself. I mean, it's just a stick. But God takes that stick. Moses isn't convinced that he's God's man. He argues with God. And so God shows Moses that who Moses is is not near as important as who God is. And how does he do that? Well, look at Exodus 4, verse 2. God demonstrates. The Lord asked him, what is in your hand? It's his shepherd's staff. Moses says, a staff. Then God said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. And Moses did exactly what I would have done. He runs. I don't like snakes. Been, been very honest about that. I believe there's a reason Satan chose the snake, and we should stay away from it. But Moses starts to run, but what does God do? Verse 4, and it would have to be God to get me to do this. Uh, but <laughs> he says, Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched, stretched out his hand and he called it, and it becomes a staff again. So right when Moses touches the snake, it hardens again, it becomes a staff again. So from a staff to a snake, back to a staff again. Why is God doing all this? Well, he's proving a point. This is the same rod that Moses would lift up in Pharaoh's court. This is the same rod that Moses would lift up and then God would part the Red Sea. The same rod. This is the same rod that Moses would use as he led the people of Israel. Um, the rod that would remind Moses, what's the point? The rod is there to remind Moses that if God can make a stick 
become a snake and then a stick again, then God can make a leader out of Moses and he can maybe, just maybe, use his stubborn people once again. It's not about the stick. It's an object that God uses to display his glory. His most powerful tools are many times the simplest. What about another shepherd from Bethlehem? Uh, You know, there are some things that everybody knows to do. Uh, A quote from the great Jim Croce, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind. How many have learned that the hard way? You don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim. Well, the Israelites would have told David, don't mess around with Goliath. Don't mess with him. And they weren't willing to. And you see this scene unfold. Saul is out of options. He's tried every powerful warrior he has. He's out of options. But you know, it's no mistake that that's the case because it's many times we have to get out of our options, run through all of our options before we're ready for God to do great things through us and around us and for us. He's out of options. Saul's out of options. And then the story of David and Goliath. And it's amazing. God, you know, Saul immediately, he, okay, David, if you're going to do this, put on this armor, and he can't, it's too big for him. I mean, the, the, the practical thinking says, okay, if he's going to fight, then we've got to arm him. And David says, you know what, I'm not used to any of that stuff. I can't, I can't use it. I'm not trained. I'm not big enough. I, I'll use what I know. So he takes a sling and five small stones. But he only needed one, right? The small stone. God uses, and suddenly Goliath falls. You don't mess around with Goliath, well, you don't mess with God either. And Goliath learned that. Uh, It wasn't David. It wasn't the stone. It was God. But God, again, shows the most powerful things when placed in God's hands, or the most simple things placed in God's hands can become powerful. And that's the way it is. Priscilla Shire says this is God's way. He puts extraordinary tasks on the plates of ordinary people so that ordinary people can see what an extraordinary God can do. Ordinary people. What about the blind man that Jesus, his disciples, discovered? I mean, they they he comes to him, everybody thought that he's blind from birth because either he sinned or his parents sinned, and Jesus knows that's not the case. And his disciples, you have to know, they know what's coming. They've seen him heal before. They know what's coming. They know what he's going to do. They just don't know how he's going to do it. And what does he do? He does something that's that's strange and pretty gross if you think about it. He spits on the ground. He makes mud and he wipes it on the guy's eyes. So you've got uh, Moses and his staff. You know, you've got shepherds in Bethlehem. You've got um, David and his stones. And now you've got God using mud to make a blind man see. All of these inanimate objects that God uses, the stones, the staff, you know, shepherds, uh, ordinary people, ordinary things, God uses all of these things once again to show that sometimes God's most powerful weapons are the simplest because it's not about the things, it's not about the people, it's about God. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says. Well, why are they blessed? Well, they're blessed first. They're in a position because they're available. And they're blessed because they, by making themselves available, are allowed the privilege of experiencing God work through them in incredibly powerful ways. 
Once again, God's power through vessels. And a little side note here. I think one of the reasons God uses things like sticks and stones and things like that is because they don't argue. They don't talk back. Uh, spit, you know. I mean, we argue with God many times. I think a lot of times he uses those things because they, you know, it teach us a lesson that, that if we're going to be used by God, then we've got to submit. We've just, okay, God, doesn't make sense, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to allow you to do your thing and do it your way. Forget what I think. I'm going to allow you to do it your way. It's like the barber who became an artist. And he, somebody asked him, said, why, why did you become an artist? He said, because the canvas doesn't tell me how to make them beautiful. If we really want to be beautiful in God's eyes, then we've got to let him go to work on us. And we've got to let him craft us into what he wants us to be. Blessed are the meek because they're available. And they don't get in the way of God making them what he wants them to be. And again, there's a uh, progression here. If I've already been humbled over the, the reality of my sin, and I realize my poverty and I'm mourning over that sin, then I've already come to the realization that there's nothing in me, there's nothing I can do to make myself beautiful compared to God, that it's going to take divine intervention. Meekness naturally follows. So so the the, the meek are blessed. Now let's look at how this applies, the application of meekness. The meek are blessed because they're available and Meekness is a supernatural quality. It's not natural. I mean, you know, we, we live in kind of a winner-take-all society, and that's human nature, fight or flight. You know, we, we want to, to fight to, to survive. And, and so meekness in and of itself is not, and again, the opposites here, meekness in and of itself is not a natural quality. The natural response to adversity or criticism um, is either despair or anger. You know, lashing out. But if I'm meek, I'm going to respond different because the Lord is in control of my life. You know, blessed are the meek. It's, it's power under control, uh, but it's not just, it's not under my control. As we've just established, it's power. It's God's power under God's control in and through my life. It, it's, it's him controlling me. So I want to offer an expanded definition here of meekness. This is from Pastor Ray Pritchard. He says, meekness is self-control, which manifests itself in a gentle spirit based on an unshakable confidence in God, faith in God. It's self-control, but I use that term self-control. Myself is not controlled by myself. It's controlled by God. It's controlled by him, and it's based on that unshakable confidence. It's self-control based on God's control. So it really is a supernatural virtue that's produced by the Holy Spirit. Meekness comes because I've surrendered my life to the point that God is now free to demonstrate his power through me. You know, I'm in complete submission to him. I'm just a vessel. He's working through me. And so, so his power is on display. And his power is on display if I've gotten to that point in my life already when the, the difficult moments of life come, uh, I will still be meek. And, and his, God's power will still be in control of my life. He will be in control. 
We've seen from biblical examples, we see in life uh, that, that, that people who've accomplished the greatest things for God, people that we would consider to be spiritual giants, they are just ordinary men and women. There's, you know, God uses ordinary people, but the reason that they've accomplished great things for God is because they were able to submit to God completely. They weren't perfect. And they didn't submit perfectly all the time. They had their good moments and bad moments. But consistently, over the course of their lives, they submitted to the Lord. God's hand was controlling their lives. And so God's power was evident in their lives. It is God's power on display. So what does meekness look like in real life? Well, how do we live it from day to day? Again, Pastor Ray Pritchard gives us three great ways. Meekness is gentleness when I'm provoked. It is boldness in the face of evil and his openness and approachability with others we see these three qualities in jesus life i mean he was the most powerful man that walked this earth yet he was constantly living in submission to the father he got angry when he chased away the money changers at the temple i referred to that a little bit earlier but his anger was not inappropriate he got angry in the right way it wasn't out of control it wasn't rage he rebuked the pharisees but then he ate with prostitutes and tax collectors he had the right to dine with the wealthiest of society if he chose to he's god but yet he chose the sinners the sick he welcomed children he spoke to large crowds but he and he he now sermon on the mount crowds gathering yet he can feel a, hand, a woman's hand brush the hem of his garment. When you talk about meek, he was meek. He wasn't weak. He wasn't a pushover. He wasn't a wimp. I mean, he still did some pretty incredible things. I mean, he raised the dead. He cast out demons. He, he healed people left and right. He wasn't weak. He wasn't a wimp, but he was meek. Isaiah 53, 7, Isaiah's prophecy says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. And that prophecy came true. Exactly. I mean, when he was arrested and put on trial, he didn't debate Pilate. He didn't curse Herod. He didn't even resist arrest. He didn't resist the soldiers. Instead, he willfully humbled himself and died for you and for me. He gave his life. Isaiah continues, or a few verses back, 53, verse 4 and 5, Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. That's real meekness. That is the perfect example of, of power, total power, under control. God chose to place his infinite power to humble himself. And God in the flesh submitted to God the Father. Total power. He was the Son of God who made other people feel welcome. Think about that. He is holy, transcendent God, yet he made people feel more at home around him than they ever had. And he does that to this day, doesn't he? He welcomes sinners because he takes us and he forgives us if we're willing to repent. And then he makes us what he wants us to be. 
He, if we make ourselves available, then we feel at home around him because we're at home in the center of his will. And when people came to Jesus, they felt rested. They felt satisfied. They didn't feel harassed. They didn't feel pressured. And they were pressured in a lot of different ways. You know, it's no wonder people felt at home with him. It's no wonder people flocked to him like they did. Meekness is probably best seen in how we deal with other people. We see it in Jesus' life, how he treated others. There's never anyone that he didn't have time for. And he had a lot to accomplish, yet he still had time for people. It's how we treat people specifically, and it's how we treat them especially when things are tough, when life is stressful, when things are uncertain. It's, hard, it's, it's not hard to be gentle when things are going well, but when the heat's on, when the pressure's on, when things aren't going well at work or in society or in your family or whatever, that's when meekness shines through. And if you don't have it before the pressure's on, you're not going to gain it when the pressure's on. Meekness is a quality. It's not nice. It's not just niceness. It's, it's who I am. It's being like Christ. Meekness is seen when things are difficult, and it's seen in how we treat others and whether or not we do love other people. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that meekness comes from having the right view of yourself before God. It's viewing myself properly in contrast to who God is. You don't worry about what others say because you know that you probably deserve that and a whole lot more. You don't get angry when, you're, when you've been mistreated because you think about what Jesus endured. And you think about the fact that you deserve so much more. He didn't deserve anything that he received in terms of, of, of being mistreated. Instead of Instead of feeling sorry for yourself and, and, and getting down and getting angry when times are tough, you're amazed that God treats you as well as he does at all to begin with. That he treats you well at all. Because what we deserve is God's punishment, his wrath. Instead, we get grace and we get mercy. So it doesn't matter what life throws at me or what happens. I'm just thankful that I have the grace of God. And it's that attitude, that humility, that frame of mind that allows us to treat others with love and mercy and grace because we've received so much of all of those things. Someone who's meek doesn't fight for his own rights. He's not, he doesn't insist on personal vindication. He doesn't always have to correct others, doesn't have to repay in kind, uh, you know, uh, mean for mean, hate for hate. He doesn't have to do any of those things. A person who's meek is gentle and humble meekness is self-control that's manifested in a gentle spirit based on an unshakable confidence in god and of course the promise is that the meek are blessed why because they will inherit the earth again there's going to be one day a reversal of the haves and the have-nots you may not get it in this life and you know this isn't a health and wealth type of thing but but the truth is one day we will sit before the greatest banquet, the greatest feast that man could ever imagine, will be in the presence of Jesus Christ, where there's no sickness or pain or suffering or any of those things. When Christ returns and establishes his eternal kingdom, all those people that were in the back seat in this earth, uh, on this earth who followed Jesus will be reigning alongside him. 
That's the promise that we have in Scripture. And that's what he's saying. The meek will inherit the earth. Do they inherit it because they're meek? No, they inherit it because they are now children of God. They have, they have recognized their spiritual poverty. They've mourned over their sin. They've submitted their life to Christ, and he's made them meek. And meekness in this life, which may take a back seat to others, results in, because of what God has done in saving us, results in reigning with him throughout all of eternity. There's a role reversal. That's our inheritance. You know, it's, a lot of times in this life, it seems like the bad guys always win, doesn't it? It seems like those who, who achieve great things, those who get ahead, they do it uh, by means that are not wholesome. They cheat other people or whatever the case. And it seems like those folks, they always win and, and they never fail. And we can get consumed with they need to pay for what they've done or how dare they succeed. When's it going to be my turn? Best that we leave that up to God. And we focus on serving him and allowing him to work in and through us. Because one day, I hope no one goes to hell, but one day, all all of those scores will be settled. I mean, God's going to account for all of that. And, And those who know him, those who belong to him, will reign. The best, the truth is, all of us, we have all that we need, and we have a lot more than we could ever deserve if we have Jesus. And he's blessed us with more than we could ever deserve. And so keeping score and figuring out who should be first and second, we shouldn't even be thinking about those things. We have Jesus. And the reality is the kingdom of heaven is wherever Jesus is. And if he's in your heart and in your life, then you are part of his kingdom. You know, Max Lucado talks about a cathedral that's outside of Bethlehem, and it's, it marks the supposed birthplace of, of Christ. I uh, don't know for sure, but that's, that's what they claim, at least. And if you go into this cathedral, it's, there's a high altar in, in the cathedral, and behind that is just a small little cave. It's a small little cave. And you can go in the cave, but they've, the, the door to the cave is very low, and you have to stoop to go into the cave. And you can see, you can just kind of picture that, right? I mean, there's, you know, picture paints a thousand words, and you have to kneel, stoop, to go into where they say Jesus was born. That's how you enter that physical cave. You can go into the main building. You could admire all of the beauty of the cathedral, but to get to that simple little cave, you've got to stoop. You've got to humble yourself. And that's the way it is with Christ, right? I mean, if we're going to enter into a relationship with him... You can, you can achieve a lot in this life. You can stand on top of the world, so to speak. But if you want to reign with Christ, you have to stoop. You have to humble yourself. You have to be meek. You've got to be willing to submit. You know, I, a few years back, I, I guess it was 2016 when, when Muhammad Ali passed away, I, I listened to his wife's eulogy of him. And she talked about how he had... An, an intense desire to go to heaven. And I wrote this down. I kept it because it struck a chord in me. She said, he awoke every morning thinking about his own salvation. And he would often say, I just want to go to heaven. He said, but I've got a lot of good deeds I have to do before I can get there. I hope he found Christ before he passed away. I really do. You know, a lot of people look at getting to heaven that way. How do you get to heaven? Well, I've got to do enough good things. When I get to the end of my life, God will tally the score, and hopefully the good will outweigh the bad. 
But then I go back to that picture in my head of that cave in the cathedral. Getting to heaven, you can get to heaven, but you're not going to get to heaven by doing enough good things. It's not about the haves and the have-nots, the achievements and the like thereof. If you want to get to heaven, good deeds aren't going to get you there. You can get to heaven, but you've got to stoop through the door that's marked for the meek only. Only those who are willing to submit to Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. The only way, the truth, and the life. Only those who are willing to humble themselves before their Savior. Only those who recognize their spiritual poverty before God. Who mourn over their sin and beg for mercy because we know that's our only chance. We don't deserve salvation. I can't earn it. I can't achieve it. But I can receive salvation from Christ and Christ alone. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth long after the proud have killed themselves trying to possess it. You want to inherit the earth? Humble yourself before your creator. Receive salvation that only he can provide. And I don't know where you are in this room, at home, wherever you are. And, and as we go through this series, again, I hope you notice the progression. It's poverty. I'm destitute. I'm sinful. And, and I'm mourning over that sin, and I'm crying out to God. Lord, you forgive me. Jesus, you come into my life. You forgive me. I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve forgiveness. I'm begging for mercy. But if you'll do that, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior... If you will come before, humble yourself before Jesus, recognize that he died for your sins and that he alone can give you forgiveness. If you will receive that forgiveness, you will experience the joy, the abundance of salvation that's only found in him. We're going to spend a few moments in prayer. And I just encourage you, wherever you are, whether that's you, you don't know Christ, and maybe you can identify with that testimony I just wrote, read. Maybe you're, 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 you're thinking, hey, if I can just do a little bit more, if I can do some more good deeds, if I get to the end of my life and the good outweighs the bad, maybe if that's you and you, you've, you've been, been stumbling through life and working yourself to death, maybe you just need to realize that, that Jesus wants to give you the free gift of salvation, and I encourage you just to cry out to him wherever you are. Maybe you're struggling with this concept of meekness. Maybe you're struggling with the, the kind of opposites, the role reversals, and how that, how that works, and, and how those who are meek could possibly be blessed. And maybe you're struggling with surrender, submission. You know Jesus, you're a child of God, but s- submitting to him and surrendering to him every day is where you struggle. Allowing him to live his life through you, and, and to work through you in the way that honors him, and not the way you would plan or desire, wherever you are. Let's just spend a few moments in prayer and allow God to speak to your heart and to show you how he wants you to apply this. Father, we thank you for the promise of blessing that comes with each of these. And this, as with many of the Beatitudes, is it seems a little bit strange to talk about the meek being blessed and how the last could be first and that whole principle where the roles are reversed. But that's your kingdom math and that's how you measure and we know one of the reasons the meek are blessed is because they have submitted and surrendered to you and and received salvation they realize they can't do it on their own they can't get to heaven by doing enough good things they can only get there by receiving the gift of salvation that's available through your son jesus christ that jesus you gave your life on the cross to pay the price for our sins that we could not pay 
and we can't earn that gift. That's why it's a gift. We, we do have to receive it, though. And I pray that if there's somebody here today who is watching at home, worshiping at home, if they haven't received that precious gift, that they would, right now as we're praying, just invite you into their lives. That they would admit, admit their sin, that they have fallen short, as we all have, and that they would just ask you to come in and forgive them of their sins. Believing that you died for them, and that you were raised three days later, later that you are alive now. For those of us who know you, I pray that we would just spend these few moments evaluating our level of submission. Are we allowing you to direct our paths? Are we teachable? Are we making ourselves available to you? Are we open to your will? Are we willing to let you accomplish your purpose in our lives and through us? Are we trying to run it ourselves? Are we trying to make our lives match our own agendas? what we want, not what you want. Lord, whatever needs to happen, whatever level of submission or humility that needs to take place, I pray that, that we would do that now and that it would result in total submission, complete and total surrender to your will and your way. Lord, I thank you that you choose to use us ordinary human beings at all, that by your grace we have a place in your kingdom work. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. Yet you choose to shower us with grace. You choose to allow us a place at your table. God, I, I thank you for that. I thank you that you could use a flawed human being like me, that if you can use a stick, if you can use a stone, if you can use an ordinary shepherd, you can use somebody like me. You can use all of us if we're willing. And I pray that we would make ourselves available, that we would be willing. Lord, we thank you. We owe you everything. In Jesus' name, amen.